All Islamic doctrine is based on the words of Allah and the Sunnah of Muhammad. Allah is found in the Quran and Muhammad is found in the Sirah, which is his biography, and the Hadith, which is the tradition surrounding Muhammad's life. All of Islam is based on the Quran, Sirah, and Hadith. If it is in this trilogy of documents, it is Islam. If it is not in this trilogy, then it is not Islam. Therefore, if you desire to know Islam, you must know the trilogy. There is an inherent problem in knowing the trilogy, however. The problem is that the Quran, Sirah, and Hadith were designed to be difficult to understand. There's only one way for them to be understood. They must be viewed as a systematic whole, not three separate books. Stay tuned for my conversation with Dr. Bill Warner on political Islam next on the Soaring Eagle Radio Show. Remember that your failure to be informed does not make me a wacko. Well, the time has come, the walrus said, to talk of other things, of shoes and chips and ceiling wax and cabbages and kings. My mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hello, and welcome to Soaring Eagle Radio. Your host is Mike Spaulding. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged as you consider today's news and Mike's commentary from a biblical perspective. Now, let's join Mike. Welcome, friends. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Soaring Eagle Radio. You may subscribe and listen to the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, and, of course, on our website, SoaringEagleRadio.com. Dr. Bill Warner is the director the Center for the Study of Political Islam. CSPI's goal is to teach the doctrine of political Islam and through that effort inform and educate. It accomplishes that goal primarily through books, videos, and lectures. The Center's website, and I'll give this again uh, towards the end of our conversation, Bill, but the, the Center's website is www.politicalislam.com. Welcome to the Soaring Eagle Radio Show, Bill. Glad to be here. I'm, I'm pleased that you accepted my invitation. I've followed your work and the center's work for a long time and, and been uh, uh, very encouraged by the bold stand for truth that, that you've made. And um, so by way of introduction, Bill, I wonder if you would share with our listeners uh, a little bit about the Center for the Study of Political Islam. Well, the center uh, is an international organization. Uh, it's an NGO, which is... Uh, non-governmental organization centered in Czech Republic and it's devoted to taking my work 
and translating into different languages and trying to inject it into the political system of Europe. Which is a very valuable um, effort and endeavor uh, right now. Um, one of the things that caught my attention, Bill, about your work initially, is that you make a very uh, clear distinction between political Islam and religious Islam. Uh, I'm wondering if you would address that. The idea came to me, first off, my study of Islam started 45 years ago. So this, uh, I've been at it a while. Yes. And uh, when I saw the second plane hit the second tower, I realized that my whole life had changed, that I lived in a nation which didn't know a Sikh from a Hindu, from a Buddhist, from a Muslim. So true. And so I wanted to uh, make it so that people could understand it. And I also realized that living in America with a very strong First Amendment, that I would never be able to put a dent in the religion of Islam. Mm. So I coined the term political Islam because I'm only interested in the part of Islam that deals with me, the non-believer, the yeah. yeah. So I coined the term political Islam in order to separate it away from religion. I don't deal with questions of salvation or comparative religion. What I deal with is the part of Islam that deals with me and you, yes. the non-believer. Yes. And that's what I define political Islam to be. Yes. So that's yes. uh, my concept. Yeah, and that's a very helpful distinction, Bill, because uh, uh, in the world of, of Islam, anyone who is not an adherent, a follower of, of Muhammad, uh, is not a Muslim, is an unbeliever, regardless of what faith they might claim. That's a fair statement, isn't it? Yes, and let's take here and develop the concept of the people of the book. Okay. Because there are many Christians and Jews who say, oh, look, Islam has a warm, fuzzy, nice place for the Christian and the Jew because we're people of the book. We're members of the family of Abraham, so we're kind of kissing cousins here. Well, let's <laughs> dig a little bit deeper into that yeah. concept. Yeah. It turns out that uh, as Muslims love to say, Jesus is more times in the Quran and Mary is more times in the Quran than Muhammad. Well, kind of, but not really. Because the Jesus that's in the Quran in Arabic is called Isa. Mm -hmm. Isa is not the Trinity, is uh, not part of the Trinity, did not die, was not crucified, didn't, was not resurrected, and offers no salvation. Isa of the Quran is the uh, prophet of Allah whose purpose was coming to foretell the arrival of Muhammad, Ahmed. Yes. Now, if that is your Christianity, then you are one of the people of the book. Yes. My guess is that does not describe your Christianity, and therefore you're not one of the people of the book, and you're just another Kafir. Yes. Yeah. I guess the question that I have then at that point, Bill, is don't uh, Muslims know that? They know that uh, that what's propagated uh, by our by our media today in, in the United States, and I think that it's true in other Western countries, is not really accurate when it comes to how adherents of Islam view people of other faiths, Christians, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, what have you. It's not really an accurate picture to say that, well, we're people of the book, and so they, they have a respect for us, because that's really not true, is it? Let's make it... <clears throat> let's make it and Islam. You can find Muslims who think just about anything. Yeah. But what I discuss is the doctrine of Islam. 
And so that's all that I care about. That is, I care about what Muhammad says and Allah says, yes. not what Muslims think about anything. And repeat your question again. Yes. Well, you were talking about how Muslims are quick to point out that uh, Jesus is spoken of in the Quran, that Mary is spoken oh. of in the Quran, and that uh, Christians and Jews are people of the book. Um, but that's that's really a sort of a sleight of hand, so to speak, because that's not an accurate... If we're not a Muslim and we're not following Muhammad, then we're an unbeliever, period. That's true. Now, let me say something here. There's a reason why... A lot of these concepts subtly shift. You have to understand that the Quran is an answer to Muhammad's problems when he had those problems. Yes. You see, when he first started being the prophet of Allah, he's a middle-aged businessman. All of a sudden, he has this voice he reports to us that's telling us that he's the prophet of Allah and that he is to deliver this message to the entire world. Now, if you, that is your situation, you need to be able to explain to people why you're not just hearing voices in your head. You need to validate yourself. Yes. So Muhammad validated his message by saying that he was in the lineage of the Jewish prophets, that the archangel Gabriel speaking to him was the same one who brought the uh, voice of God to Moses. Mm -hmm. So therefore, he was kind of the caboose on the Jewish prophet train. Now, therefore, the early Quran speaks very favorably towards the Jew because Muhammad is kind of an adopted Jew. But when he went to Medina, the Jews of Medina, and by the way, there were virtually no Jews in Mecca, but in Medina it was half Jewish, and they took one look at Muhammad and said, uh, no, you're not a prophet. <laughs> yep. Then the entire tone of the Quran viciously changes to be a hater of the Jews. As a matter of fact, there's more Jew hatred in the Quran than there is in Mein Kampf. Mm. They're called apes and pigs and worse. Yes. Now then, the same is true of Christians. When he was having his arguments with the Jews, he cozies up to the Christians, uh, what few there were in Arabia, as sort of needing another friend. But after he decimated, what well, he did more than decimated, he annihilated the Jews and subjugated all the Arabs, his attention then turned to the Christians. And all of a sudden, the Christians are now no longer such sweet, nice people, but now they're the enemies of Allah. <clears throat> the final Quran verse that describes them in Surah 9 says that they're to be subjugated and made dimmies and be subjected to Sharia law. Mm. My point here is this. Islamic <clears throat> doctrinal attitudes change as time goes on. So you can kind of get whatever you want out of the Islamic doctrine. Mm. Muhammad loved Jews. Allah loves Jews. Muhammad hates Jews. Allah hates Jews. Well, which is it, Bill? And mm. the answer is yes. Y yeah. Because you see, yeah. Islam has a principle in it called dualism. Mm. There are two Qurans, an early Quran and a latter Quran, and they can be enormously different. Well, I've just given you the answer, the, the example of the Jews. Yes. So... Whenever you say anything about Islam, you need to kind of give the date of it. Because if it's an early date, it's one position. If it's a latter date, it's another position. Okay. This is one of the greatest difficulties that people have in trying to understand Islam. Because they'll meet some Muslim at work who tells them, Oh, we honor Jesus. We honor all the prophets. We honor Mary, son of, uh, mother of Isa. So you get any opinion you need and want. And this leads to a vast confusion. 
So is a real Muslim the nice professional engineer at work, or is it the head of Islamic State? And the answer again is yes. Yes, yes. So what you're speaking about here is is really a, a form of dualism, a, a yes. dualistic logic. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. It's very handy, by the way. I can see how you, it would be. You get, it's like, you get whatever you need when you need it. And that's exactly when you read the Quran with Muhammad's life integrated into it, you see that's what the Quran represents. Muhammad has a problem, Allah has an answer. Yes, that's right. Well, why, uh, why do you think, Bill, you've done this, as you said at the beginning of the uh, show, You've been researching and writing, studying, speaking on the topic of political Islam for 45 years. Why is it that after 45 years, and maybe this is an unfair statement, you can correct me if, if it's wrong, Bill, but why is the West almost as ignorant today as they were 45 years ago, or is that not a fair statement? Oh, now you're going to make me weep. <laughs> First off, let's, let's, let's define something. Okay. Which part of the populace are we going to talk about knowing? I'm going to discuss mm, things that I know yeah. about here in Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. The pulpits are professionally ignorant on the subject of Islam. Yes. Now, the pews, not so much. Mm -hmm. I had 15 seconds of fame the last time I was in Europe. I was on an elevator in a hotel in Vienna. The, the uh, door opened and in stepped a man with a utility belt and a toolkit in his hand. He took one look at me and he says, you look like Bill Warner. <laughs> I said, well, I am. He was delighted because he had seen my uh, videos. and Yes. Now, but what did I describe this man to you as? He was a blue-collar worker. Yes, that's right. Undoubtedly, the head of the hotel didn't hold the same opinions. Mm -hmm. Because what I find is the higher you go, the less they know. And I learned this in dealing with military people. A sergeant who's done time in Afghanistan knows a lot about Islam. A four-star general knows virtually nothing. Mm. It's the same with the FBI. The higher you go in the FBI, the less they know. So it's when you ask the question, how much is known? And let me give you a measurement of this. My wife is an Internet researcher, which I do not indulge myself in. I've always been afraid of the uh, Internet because I feel like it's kind of like cocaine or something. You know, once you start doing it, you won't yeah, stop. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. So I tell people I love to read big, thick, old books. It's mm. a pastime of mine. Yes. So I think that those in charge, for instance, a minister, realizes that if he admits what Islam is, he'll need to do something. Mm -hmm. And it's the doing something that scares people. Because here's what will happen if you admit the truth of Islam. I have just been called one of America's top ten haters by the Southern Poverty Law Center and CARE, which is a, quote, civil rights organization dealing with Muslim rights, has declared that I'm part of the inner circle of hate. Hmm. Now then, what this means is if you take a position on Islam, it's not that they're going to come blow your house up, but they will, the good media will say, oh, well, Mike Spaulding, he's a bigot, he's a hater, and he's an Islamophobe. Yeah. Now, if you're in the business of being a minister... You better have a good relationship with your flock because that doesn't look good on your resume. <laughs> People are afraid of being called bad names. Now, when I was a boy, and believe it or not, I once was a time a boy, uh, we had a saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, today it's viewed that names will crush your character and destroy your reputation and get you out of a job. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if it's pride is the correct word, Bill, but uh, but I am honored and blessed to say that my congregation is very aware of the dangers of political Islam. I've I've referred them to your to your research and website often, and I've stated on numerous occasions from the pulpit that uh, political Islam, and of course this I'm going to address it from a spiritual perspective here in this statement, but political Islam is from a spiritual perspective, is manifesting the spirit of Antichrist and is being used today in the world uh, from a spiritual perspective. Now, I know you don't touch on that, and so you probably won't respond to that, but I just want you to know that there are people in the pulpit that are speaking out against it. You're one of, uh, by the way, when I condemn the churches, I then say with a pause, now I'm only condemning 95% of them. (laughs) Yeah, and that's sad. That's sad. It's tragically sad. Yes. It's tragically sad. I had a researcher working for me and an editor and a writer, and she was studying the Hadith, doing work that I wanted her to do. This woman was a Jew without a synagogue, and so she was sort of interested in religion in a personal way. And the more she read the Hadith with Muhammad, she said to me one day, she says, Bill, Muhammad is kind of an antichrist. Mm -hmm. I says, well, now the term antichrist can be a technical term in theology, but I will say this. Yes. Everything that Jesus stood for, he stood against. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, one of the things that I've discovered in my research, and you talk about this uh, also, Bill, is the the confusion uh, that the West has uh, understanding Islam is because they're not viewing it uh, for what it is for a, a political system of thinking, uh, philosophy. They're trying to understand it through uh, religious lenses. And so they don't understand how adherence to, of Islam could massacre people. And uh, and so they, they do all kinds of mental gymnastics to avoid saying certain terms and certain words. But the truth of the matter is that uh, if someone is going to uh, follow Muhammad, and do as Muhammad did, then um, they're not going to take a high view of human life at all, are they? No. And by the way, the religion I refer to as a stealth coding for the political system. Mm. Well, you can't criticize a religion, comma, unless it's Christianity. Yes, that's correct. And so therefore, and also people think, well, if it's a religion, then it's got nothing to do with me. For instance, you may be an atheist, and so you go, well, what do I care? Yes, that's right. I'm a Christian. All all religions are bad. Yeah. Well, they don't understand something. According to the doctrine of Islam, there's only one thing worse than an atheist, and that's an apostate from Islam. Mm. That is, a Muslim or the doctrine holds a Christian in higher esteem than it does an atheist. (laughs) The point I'm pointing out here is, is that everybody's got a dog in this fight. Yes, It's not just if you're a religious person or not. It's yes. if you're a person, there's a problem. Yes, yeah. And the point I was uh, that, that I'm getting at, Bill, is that, uh, for example, Christianity has what we call the golden rule, that we yes. treat other people the way that we desire to be treated ourselves. But that doesn't apply to Islam in a political sense, does it? No, and this is the grand tragedy of Islam. And that is, it's... Our ethical system in our, in our civilization has as its cornerstone the golden rule. We gave women the vote because of the golden rule. We ended slavery because of the golden rule. Yes. 
Buddhism has a golden rule. Hinduism does. Judaism does. Christianity does. And listen, I have atheist friends, and they too adhere to the golden rule. That's so right. It's a what I call a unitary ethical system. Mm-hmm. Do unto others. Which others, Bill? All others. Yes. But Islam does not have a golden rule. Now, if there were a Muslim on stage here, he'd jump up and say, oh, no, no, we do. To which I respond, show it to me. Yes. Yeah. Because a Muslim is a brother to another Muslim. A Muslim is to not cheat another Muslim in business. A Muslim is not to deceive another Muslim. A Muslim is not to touch another Muslim's wife. Are you noticing a theme here? Yes. Yeah. The ethic is towards other Muslims. Now, so if you're a, you are to be a brother to another Muslim. So that's fine enough, but it doesn't extend to me. Yes. And as a matter of fact, what makes it even worse is that there's a concept of sacred deception, taqiyah, and there are 12 verses in the Quran which say that a Muslim is never the true friend of, an, of a kafir, the non-believer. Now that he can be friendly. Yes. Friendly is very different from friends. I bought a used car recently and I walked under the car lot. And Mike, do you know how many people, friendly people I met? <laughs> Every salesman on the lot. Every salesman on the lot was friendly. <laughs> I didn't know they didn't even know what my name was. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Now, by the way, let me say something here. There are many people who call themselves Muslims who truly are friends of Kafirs. The reason is they don't adhere to the Islamic doctrine. Yes. Because I think that I've just finished reading a book on the physiology of the brain, and there's a certain way the brain is wired in which we feel good when we help others. Mm -hmm. So I maintain that the unitary ethic is a human ethic, Mm -hmm. and that the dualistic ethical system is an inhuman system. Yes, yeah. Well... I've, I've read some of your uh, research, as I stated, and, and you give some very interesting statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one of them that I, that I jotted down is that there are 146 references to hell in the Quran, <laughs> but there are only, but only 6% of those in hell are there for moral failings, such as yes. theft and so on and so forth. So the other 94% of the reasons for, for being in hell or for the intellectual sin of disagreeing with Muhammad. Yes. It's a gulag. It's a pr- it's a political prison. <laughs> this was overwhelming. I mean, uh, by the way, the oddest thing to me about all of this, I feel like as a scientist, I got to go into the garden and pick all of the low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. You just gave some of that low-hanging fruit. Yeah. My question is, this stuff's been around for 1,400 years. Yes. Why is it? And this is the primary question. Why is it that I'm the first guy I ever sat down and said, well, there's 146 references to hell? And then the majority of them are you don't believe Muhammad, which is a political sin so far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. We come to the tough question, why has nobody done this work before? Right. There's been a massive fear of the doctrine of Islam. Yeah. What conclusion have you arrived at? Why hasn't this been done before? Out and out fear. There is an enormous, when I first started doing this work, people who would defend Islam to my face would then end with the final question, aren't you afraid? Mm. <clears throat> now, this is not yeah. a question to ask, but it's a question that people did ask. That's the reason why the video that I've done, which has had so many views on, on the Internet, why we are afraid, was in answer to this question. There are 
People who don't know anything about Islam have a sneaking suspicion it's not all four square. And yet we will live in a world that's politically correct in which we're not. Matter of fact, you and I aren't supposed to be holding this conversation. <laughs> we're not true. good, yeah. decent people. We're going to yeah. talk about Islam in a way that's critical thought. Yeah. You know, as a scientist, I like to measure things. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I did measure was that. Mm -hmm. Do you think, Bill, that we're playing right into the to the hands of uh, political Islam with our, I don't think it's an unfair characterization to say America's love affair with multiculturalism. Uh, yes. It's, it's sort of like it's the proof. If you can believe that Islam is part of our civilization, then you are a bona fide progressive and leftist. And so, yes, it's uh, multiculturalism is the strangest thing. You need to have a PhD in sociology to believe in multiculturalism. Let me give you an example of why I say that. An illiterate immigrant knows not to go to Haiti. But if all cultures are equally valid, then why not go to Haiti? Yeah. Why is it that Muslims always want to come to our world, not to their own world? Mm-hmm. That's right. So multiculturalism is a vast lie, which in the end, no one believes at the personal level. That's, that's true. Yeah. So why do you think we see so many... Um, well-known figures, political leaders, uh, certainly religious leaders, uh, falling all over themselves to try and uh, walk in lockstep, uh, arms joined together with with Islam. And I'll I'll start with Pope Francis. He he uh, he has repeatedly called Christians to be at peace with Islam. I've got nothing against peace, by the way, but here's the, where I differ from the Pope. I also don't have anything against war. I think war is like a powerful medicine that needs to be used as little as possible. Mm -hmm. But to take it out of your toolkit means that there are certain diseases you're not going to be able to cure. Yeah. Amongst them, political extremism. Yeah. Yeah. People, and, and, and Pope Francis has done this, but other people as well, um, they, they use this phrase, uh, true Islam. To kind of, it seems like they're trying to divert attention away from what is really true Islam and have you focus on something that isn't. It's just a characterization. True Islam, let's define this. Yeah. As a scientist, I love defining terms because part of the art of being a scientist, or maybe the science of being a scientist, if I can use the term, <laughs> is proper naming. Nomenclature is overwhelmingly important. Yeah. And Islam is the doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. That's what true Islam is. Anything else is simply not true Islam. What people want to say is, is that they want to say that Islam is like Reform Judaism or Unitarianism. It's whatever you want it to be. You want it nice, it's nice. You want it not nice, whatever. It's mm -hmm. personal. Mm -hmm. But the doctrine of Islam, true Islam, has only one meaning. The doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Now, it's a religious doctrine, a political doctrine, but that is what true Islam means. What really breaks my heart is that Francis is a former Jesuit. Yes. And here we see a sad story. At one time, the Jesuits were noted for their use of logic, but no longer. They're now just another politically correct, soft peddling, everybody's nice and everybody's got to get along. To answer Rodney King's thing, can't we all get along? Yeah. Mike, we cannot all get along. That's that's true. I give you history of humanity. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. And by the way, as long as they can say true Islam, what they're saying is is people like Islamic State are false Islam. Yes. I read the output of Islamic State, which is uh, some people call it ISIS, and they always go through enormous detail to justify their jihad. Mm -hmm. As an example, they have sex slaves. When they're criticized about sex slaves, they issue a whole dissertation about the doctrinal justification of sex slaves. Because you see, Pope Francis and all of the vast numbers of religious leaders like him, I don't want to get off on him too much. He just happens to wear nicer clothes than the average clergyman. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> what he would like to say is, well, you see, there's real true Islam, and the Islam of Islamic State is not real. The Islam of Islamic State is 100% authentic in terms of its doctrine. Yeah. It's just that the Pope or nobody else wants to, to deal with the fact that Muhammad had sex slaves, his companions mm -hmm. had sex slaves, mm -hmm. and that sex slaves are a part of the Quran and the Sirah and the Hadith. That's true Islam. But notice it is my reference to true Islam is devoid of personality. It only deals with Muhammad and Allah. Yes. One of the strategies I've noticed too, Bill, and maybe you can speak to this, is that uh, apologists for Islam, whether they're doing out of ignorance or for some other reason, I can't can't certainly can't judge their motivation, but they try to um, they try to downplay what Islam really is and the atrocities that uh, its adherents commit by comparison to Christian Bible, especially the Old Testament, and they talk about acts of violence and they they try to justify what's going on now with ISIS or ISIL or, or uh, Al-Qaeda or, or whomever. Uh, and they try to justify that as you, as you, that's what got me thinking about this. They try to justify that activity on the basis, well, the, the Christian Bible has just as much, if not more violence in it. But there's a, there's a big distinction between political violence and just a recounting of the narrative, including violence, isn't there? Here's the difference, and there's two differences. First off, I've measured the amount of violence that there is in the Old Testament, and I define the violence not as personal violence. Cain killing Abel is not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in political violence, Yes. and that doesn't mean civil wars that Jews fall amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. I define political violence as something that is done outside of your group. That is, so, and there is such violence found in the Old Testament. Yes. There's none found in the New Testament. Yeah. So I measured, did a word count of all the political violence that is attacking those outside of your group found in the Quran, the Sirah and the Hadith, as versus the Old Testament. And as I recall, because I'm speaking without any notes in front of me, it's over 30 times as much. But that is not the critical difference. The violence that's in the Quran is eternal. It is prescriptive. It is to go until the end of time. Yes. The violence that is found in the Old Testament is what we'll call historical violence. It occurred at this time, this place, and these were the opponents who fought each other, and these are the results. That is like a history lesson. This is something that happened between tribes. But the things that happened with Muhammad are exemplary, and they are eternal. Yes. So therefore, jihad cannot disappear. It is part of the eternal nature of Islam, and it cannot go away. So the big difference between... And by the way, there's another big difference as well, which is the political impact. The Old Testament is the sacred text for some Jews. 
I don't want to get off into that too far. But I've met Jews who are rabbis who basically don't believe in the Old Testament. I'm kind of like, why are you, why are you doing that job? Yeah, exactly. We'll, that. <laughs> we'll talk about that off air. <laughs> okay. But the violence, it, the doctrine of Islam is permanent and it is not negotiable. You can't pick and choose. It isn't a buffet bar you can choose from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Islamic apologists, and I, I see this more and more and more, even from uh, uh, the mainstream media here in the United States, they are quick to uh, offer uh, every excuse imaginable for the atrocities that we see being committed. It's almost like they're, they've all secretly signed up, Bill, under this don't, don't blame Muslims uh, campaign. For example, and I hear this often, I know you've probably heard it much more. Well, the problem with Islam today is that radicals have hijacked the religion. <laughs> That's an old chestnut. Yeah. Radicals have hijacked the religion. Yeah. Well, Let's define a radical. <laughs> a radical is somebody who's outside the zones or the boundaries. Mm-hmm. If I'm driving 70 miles an hour, which is the legal limit on the interstate, I am not an extremist. But if I drive 70 miles an hour in a school zone where the school buses are, that is an extreme high rate of speed. Yes. That is, what is the measurement for radical? Mm-hmm. Well, the measurement for radical in terms of Islam is the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. So if you're doing what's in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, then you cannot be a radical. If you're killing a Kafir, how can that be radical? Because Muhammad was a Kafir killer. Yes. So therefore, if you're following the example, which are the rules of the law, how can you be a radical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by the way, let me give you an example. Yes. What would a radical Christian be? Someone who gave away everything he owned? Yeah, pretty much. And yeah, in this cultural context, it would be give away everything you own and, and seek to, to live for Christ and serve the poor. And yeah, that'd be pretty radical. Now, let me define to you what a radical Muslim is. And the radical Muslim is one who has left the faith. He is an apostate. Mm. That is a radical Muslim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by the way, I highly, if you ever meet a, an apostate Muslim who has become a Christian, Bring him to your church and talk to him. Some of the most profoundly religious people I have ever met are people who have left Islam and become Christian. Yes. Well, and that's happening a lot from the uh, information that I've been able to, to read and, and uh, information given to me by, by friends and uh, some of them actually missionaries there in the Middle East. There are a lot of uh, Muslims that are coming to faith in Christ. They're leaving Islam. Of course, that's... That's an automatic death sentence if they're found out. Well, they are remarkable people. Now then, here's the thing. How do you create more apostates? And I have a theory on how to do this, which has been tried in northern Iraq in the Islamic State's territory. To convert a Muslim, you do not want to preach Jesus. You do not want to talk to him about the Gospels. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Why not? Because Jesus and The Gospels are two poisoned wells, which sounds like a strange thing to say. But remember, a Muslim already knows who Jesus is. He's Isa in the Quran. And he already knows what the Gospels are. They're referred to in the Quran and and said to be corrupt. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the Gospels to a Muslim, he thinks, well, they're corrupt. Why do I care what it says? 
Mm-hmm. And if you talk to him about Jesus, he's like, well, that's not the real Jesus. So you say, well, what are we going to do? This is going to seem odd. You tell him about Muhammad. And then you compare Muhammad to Jesus. Mm. That is the best way to start working because this, I have a man who is a uh, wonderful person who is a, an apostate from Islam, holds a PhD in engineering, and he converts them by the hundreds. But what he does is, this is in northern Iraq. This man has preached the gospel within the sounds of the artillery of Islamic State. Now there's a man. Yes, amen. There is a man. Yes. And what he does is he goes to Muslims and he says, look, what do you think of Islamic State? They don't like Islamic State. He says, what is it you don't like about Islamic State? They start telling him. Then he uses my books to show that here's the life of Muhammad and here's how what they're doing is exactly what they're supposed to do. You don't like the fact that they burn people to death? Well, here's Muhammad burning someone. So do you, is this the kind of man, you've already said you don't like the fruit, why do you like the tree? Now those mm-hmm. are his. Those are my words, not his. Yes. So what he does is, is he first introduces dissatisfaction with Islam, and then shows how that is as a function of Muhammad. That is, it's the real deal. And now then, why don't you get a better savior? Because mm-hmm. you've already rejected Muhammad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and apparently it's it's working there where he's at. He's he's seeing some fruit come from that. So I would I applaud him for for the courage and bravery to stick with that. Bill, the one thing that we didn't touch on, and I, I, I would like to do that before we uh, before we conclude our chat, is that um, there is a, a very long and dark history uh, of political Islam. It, as, as you've mentioned already, it goes back 1,400 years. And um, while while in America, uh, folks are are uh, directed towards some of the the sins of our fathers, so to speak, and uh, slavery here in America, and the the damage that that's done and 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 did, and but no one ever wants to talk about really the source. How did slave traders come across uh, Africans? Ah, one of my favorite subjects because we're now attacking shibboleths. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows the theory of slavery. By the way, I spent eight years teaching at a black university, so I'm going to say that I have some awareness of what the current racial theories of slavery are. Yeah. They are the evil white man on the wooden ship on the west coast of Africa. Mm-hmm. That's the current theory. Yes. Now, I'm not going to argue against that because I'm not going to argue for slavery, although I will put as a sidebar, the reason slavery has disappeared is not because of our moral superiority, although there is some of that, but there's also the fact we invented a better slave called a machine mm-hmm. yeah because slaves always did rough hard work that other people didn't want to do mm-hmm. yeah every slave from the west coast who came to the north america south america went through the hands of an islamic slave trader a wholesaler let's get this straight slavery is pure islam muhammad had black slaves white slaves arab slaves sex slaves children slaves he, had, he was involved in the torture of slaves, the capture of slaves, wholesale slaughter of the strong men so the women and children could be enslaved. There is no aspect of slavery that Muhammad was not involved in. None. So, then we haven't even talked yet about the slavery on the north coast of Africa, which took over a million Europeans into the slavery, into the slave pens of Islam. Yes. The highest priced slave in the Meccan slave market, which was closed in 1960, was a white woman. 1960? Yes. Wow. 
So therefore, it is, and, oh, and there was also slavery on the east coast of uh, Africa. I estimate, based on the number of slaves taken and using some history, that is, for every slave that's taken, from five to ten others had to be killed. Because first off, when you raid the village, you start killing people who are trying to defend it. And then when you leave with the good and strong ones, who do you leave behind? We leave behind the babies because we're on a forced march to the coast. You leave behind the sick. You leave behind the old. So for everyone that hits the slave pens to be sold in a wholesale deal, there are from five to ten others who have died. I estimate that 120 million Africans were killed in the process of taking slaves. Wow. Now let's deal with a piece of history here. Muhammad Ali has just died. And his name used to be Cassius Clay. Yes. Cassius Clay was an abolitionist, a white abolitionist. So Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, dropped the white man's name to take up Muhammad and Ali, who were both slave traders. Now, is this not ironic? That a man who says he wants to take away a slave name throws away the name of an abolitionist to take up the name of enslavers. Mm. Is that not bitter irony? Yes, it certainly is. Yeah, it certainly is. So if folks want to learn more about what we've discussed, they can go to your website, politicalislam.com. There are all kinds of uh, articles. There are uh, videos. uh, And and I also uh, believe that you offer some some courses, uh, don't you, Bill? I'm a former college professor. Easiest money I ever made. I was like, wait a minute, you're going to pay me to stand up in front of a group to talk? That's legal? <laughs> yeah. Because uh, as you can tell, I'm, I, I don't mind talking. So I found that most people did not want to learn about Islam because they had been told it was impossible, that it was like vast, like the Amazon jungle, or your mind cannot encompass it. So what I did was is I put together two self-study courses so that you in the first, the one that I recommend people start with are the Foundations of Islam. When you get through this course, you will know all about Islam, but not in depth. But you will have seen the whole terrain, the Sharia, uh, the story of Muhammad. And so it is a course that's dedicated so that you can teach yourself at home the doctrine of Islam. And again, I come back to this question. Why hasn't this work been done before? Yes, that's right. By the way, it is fascinating material. I think that anyone who's listened to this lecture today would have to say, they might disagree with me, but they would have to say, this is not dull material. That's a fact. And we haven't even gotten off into sex. Oh, yeah, haven't even gone there. Haven't even gone into the reason why... Uh, well, maybe maybe we should before we before we wrap up, Bill. We touched on it almost, but we didn't really address it. Why is it that the intellectuals and the so-called elitists, the uh, the media uh, uh, politicians, why is it? I mean, it's almost like it's the Stockholm syndrome or something. Yes. They, they it's just strange. You cannot logically defend your position if you are a. Are you familiar with Bill Maher? Yes. Yeah. He is one of the strongest advocates for the Kafir position because he says, look, I am a liberal. I am proud to say that I believe in equal rights for women. I am proud of that. So I stand against the doctrine of Islam, which subjugates women. Now then, I'm called a bigot. 
Why am I called a bigot for standing up for women? Oh, we'll see you oppose Islam, which means you're a bigot. No, what I oppose is the abuse of women in Islamic doctrine. Mm -hmm. So there we have, I, I find it that, and his voice is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. He presents a, he presents a great case. But as to why people do not want to, well, first off, critical thought is becoming less and less popular. I'm issuing new covers on my books, and one of them is a five-line bio in the back of the book about who I am. And it says that I am a dissident author and speaker who advocates for free speech and fact-based reasoning. Well, that seems like an odd thing to have to put on a book. I'm an advocate for free speech. <laughs> well, free speech is under attack by everybody from Facebook to uh, the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. yeah. And fact-based reasoning, let me tell you, is no longer in style. What is in style is emotional reasoning yes. because, you see, if no, no minority may be offended. And I think now we're stepping off into why Islam is so well defended because it's a corner of multiculturalism and a corner of the victimology that was used to judge all ethical arguments. In an argument anymore, the facts don't matter. If you can show yourself to be the victim, you win. Mm. And so Islam gets a free ride on the multicultural emotional reasoning thing because it's not a matter of facts. It's, well, those offend me. Let me give you an example about how far this has gone. I have yeah. a person who is, I know fairly well who is a, I can call her a colleague. She is a professor at Vanderbilt University. She made a statement in class that although it wasn't politically correct, this was her attitude about some issue, and it created a war because she said something that was not politically correct. Mm. The university went so far as to say they would fire her, but she had tenure. Then they went ahead to get this, publish a number that a student at Vanderbilt could call if they were traumatized by hearing an idea they did not agree with. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> that's the reason I say fact-based reasoning is no longer so popular anymore. Yeah. And that's the reason I say I'm a dissident who believes in free speech and fact-based reasoning. Mm -hmm. it, to, be, to believe in fact-based reasoning and free speech is to be an outsider now in our, in our civilization. So true. Yep, so true, Bill. Okay, folks, the website is politicalislam.com, politicalislam.com. You can uh, go there and, and make use of these great resources. Educate yourself. Don't continue to be deceived by the intellectual, really it's intellectual suicide that's going on in America today. Because, listen, you're not going to hear the truth about political Islam uh, from our media, from our government officials. I, I think that is, is apparent or should be apparent to everybody by now. You're not going to see or hear the truth there. So you need to check out people like uh, like Bill Warner and his website for more information. Bill, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for being with me on this episode of Soaring Eagle Radio. Mike, thank you for your interest. All right. Thank you. Song Eagle Radio is a production of Transforming Word Ministries and is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. You may subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Facebook where you can discuss this episode, and follow Soaring Eagle Radio on Twitter at Soaring Eagle Rad and listen to every episode from our website www.soaringeagleradio.com. The opening audio montage collection was created by Micah 68 Productions. 
Visit them on the internet at www.mika68.com for more information. Friends, remember the Apostle Paul's admonition to the believers meeting in Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm your host, Mike Spaulding. Thank you for joining us today for this edition of Soaring Eagle Radio. Thanks for tuning in today to the Soaring Eagle Radio Program. For more information about the show, write us at Soaring Eagle Radio, 682 West Grand Avenue, Lima, Ohio, 45801. You may also contact Mike directly by email at the following address, Pastor Mike at WOH.RR.com. God bless you today as you seek him.